The only thing that worries us a little bit about this move to a 90 degree perpendicular sample is we've been pretty adamant over a number of years about the sample having to be parallel to the muscle fibers and that that's how you get the best data and the most repeatable data. And so we're, you know, the data that we're collecting now doing it at a 90 degrees to the stake surface is looks good and, and as good or better. And so uh, we, we may be eating some crow here as it becomes uh, more, more widespread. Welcome to MeetsPad, a platform dedicated to sharing breakthrough knowledge that is accessible to the meats industry. On each episode, we will hear from meat specialists and professionals to talk about numerous topics in meat science. This podcast is brought to you by the U.S. Meat Export Federation, Ultrasource, the new standard for innovation, IFA, Meat Processing Power. FiscoFan is a global leader and innovative partner in the food industry who provides solutions for the casing market. Hello, meat folks. Welcome back to the Meat's Pad podcast. Uh, this is Phil Bass. I am flying solo. Uh, Francis- Francisco Nahar is out conquering the world and making the world a better place for us meat enthusiasts. Um, but that's okay. We're going to be just fine. Um, there's only there's only so much uh, room that I can I can see on my Zoom screen anyhow, and we have we have filled up the screen entirely with three um, humble yet very influential uh, meat scientists that maybe some of you don't know about, but it's time to uh, bring their names to the forefront, especially some of the big movements and um, and 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 uh, great advances that have come out of their place of work, which is the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center in Clay Center, Nebraska. We have Dr. Andy King, Dr. Tommy Wheeler, and Dr. Steve Shackelford on the line. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, um, just a couple general topics that I want to I want to bring about, and I'll let you guys decide who wants to cover which. But first, let's tell the listeners about what the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center is and, and why it is so important. What, what, what are some of the great impacts that that, that particular facility brings? So I think I'm going to tackle that one, Phil. So the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center is one of about 93 locations in the Agriculture Research Service, SDA. So the, the ARS is the research arm of USDA. And so there's about 2,000-ish scientists total uh, doing research in all aspects of agriculture that you can think of. So uh, here at the the Meat Animal Research Center, um, we came into existence in 1964, and that when Congress um, transferred the Naval Ammunitions Depot that was located here for World War II to the USDA. And so if you ever come here, interesting things is all of the Crete bunkers that are mostly all still here. A few are, are gone, but they're mostly still here back from, from those days. So it is kind of an interesting view uh, the first time you come here. But um, we are a USDA ARS research lab and um, we get our funding appropriated by on an annual basis. Uh, it's never on time, but it usually eventually comes. And so we just have to deal with that. But um, 
Our, our property here is 34,000 acres. So we are one of the largest uh, agriculture research centers, not only in the US, but probably in the world. So we, uh, we have about 8,000 cows and about 2,000 ewes, and we farrow about 950 litters of pigs a year. So a lot of the research we do uh, certainly is, is on the animals that we raise here ourselves. And we also raise most, uh, all the feed for those animals as well. So we have about 120 uh, federal employees that are the scientists and support staff and so forth. And then we also have about the same number of University of Nebraska employees. And those are the, the ones taking care of the animals and doing the farming and are actually paid through a, a revolving account uh, from the federal side that's, that comes from receipts of sale of, of, of livestock and crops. So um, they're not really uh, university employees, but in our system that it works out that uh, that's the way it, it happens. So we have five research units here at the center and those are genetics and breeding, nutrition, growth, theology, livestock biosystems, animal health, and then the group that we work in, which is meat safety and quality. And uh, our group has 12 scientists. So the three of us in, in meat science, and then we have nine microbiologists working on various aspects of, of meat safety. So I think uh, that's kind of a summary of who we are. That is, well, and that is a very impressive summary. I've been I've been part of the meat science community for some time, but um, never did I realize just just how massive that facility sounds like. It need I need to make a trip out. Um, oh, that'd I, be great. It, I'm, I'm I'm assuming Clay Center is not necessarily right off the beaten path, but um, I, I will I will do my best to make it there one day. <laughs> it's not on the way to anywhere, so you got to be you got to be coming here. <laughs> well, and that makes sense if that was a if that was an ammo depot at some point. You don't really want to put it right in front and center of everyone, um, right? And and this is also a, a a good example of how meat scientists um, apparently don't complain enough if they're living if they're making you live in bunkers. Um, uh, I think <laughs> we need to update we need to update your your uh, housing facility there maybe a little bit. <laughs> but um we are a humble bunch i suppose so um well and and that's a that's a great uh, synopsis of what the facility is and for folks that are out there listening you know it's uh, so many opportunities um that that your tax dollars are paying for to help us advance the knowledge base of meat meat quality animal animal production for that matter but but meat quality and meat safety um Something I want to I want to go and, and discuss with you guys um, that uh, especially along the quality aspect is something that was developed there. If, if my if my understanding is correct, something that was developed there at the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center and especially with Dr. Wheeler, Dr. Shackelford, um, uh, something called slice shear force. And so I, I want I, I'm, I'm bringing this to the forefront to the topic of discussion at the moment. But I need you to maybe explain to the audience what that is, why it's important, and what are some of the other uh, objectives that we've used for measuring tenderness in meat products. That's the whole point, right? Yeah, so we were trying to develop a system to classify beef carcasses for tenderness. And we were looking at a lot of different biochemical measurements. 
And the one thing that seemed to ring true is the best thing that we could do to predict how tender uh, the ribeye and strip loin from that carcass were going to be after aging was to measure Warner Bratzler shear force at one day post-mortem when we graded the beef. So we ultimately concluded that's what we should do is develop a system to automate measurement of tenderness of, of beef carcasses at chain speed. And we set out about how to automate Warner Bratzler shear force. And through the process of that, we came to the conclusion that it would actually be a lot easier to simply take a slice from the steak. And uh, the dimensions of that slice were somewhat set about by uh, the Warner Bratzler shear force attachment on a a uh, universal testing machine. And that had a width of about seven centimeters. So we said, we're gonna make this slice five centimeters long so that it will fit in that attachment. Uh, we're gonna change uh, the uh, blade that we shear through that sample from being the V shape that we use for Warner Bratzler shear force to a, a flat blade, but it's got the same thickness uh, the same half round bevel. And, uh, and then we started about the process of how we could take that sample parallel to the muscle fibers like we have traditionally done for Warner Bratzler shear force. And, um, and ultimately we came up with a way to do it. Uh, we kind of, as we started trying to work on automation of that, we came to the realization of this is actually a better way for us to do routine data collection. If we could come up with a way that we could routinely sample for that. And uh, Tommy's really good at drawing things up and he kind of mocked up, uh, this is what we need for a box. Uh, we got one of our people to start cutting some uh, cutting board to make that box. We actually went to my garage and made a wooden box to mount that uh, cutting board on. And pretty much the next day we were doing slice shear force uh, with that mocked up box. And ultimately um, we've had a couple of different commercial vendors that have made boxes that have been sold to other labs. So, that took care of the longissimus, and it was fairly easy to translate that from beef longissimus to pork longissimus, pretty much exactly the same process. A little more difficult to translate it to lamb longissimus because you can't take a five centimeter long slice. But if you cook two chops, you can take a two and a half centimeter long slice and lay them end to end, and then you're shearing exactly the same thing as we do in beef and pork. Mm -hmm. And then we started the process of developing this technology for other muscles. And one of those other muscles that we frequently get questions about tenderness on is the gluteus medius. Mm -hmm. And it happens to be one of the hardest muscles to do slice shear force on because to make the samples parallel to the muscle fibers, the protocol is exactly opposite depending on which side of the carcass the muscle comes from. 
And a lot of people, when they collect samples, they don't know which side of the carcass it came from. And moreover, by the time they have them cut into steaks, you can't tell which side of the carcass it came from. And I can tell you, even if you're at the subprimal level, us three experts, if we do a hundred top butts in a steak cutting plant, we'll get 97 of them correct. We will not get a hundred of them correct. <laughs> History has shown that repeatedly. <laughs> so we were having a discussion about one of the commercial packers wanted to, wanted to address the top sirloin. And, and I brought up the point, we had looked at parallel versus perpendicular sampling in longissimus many moons ago. And I said, it doesn't have the dramatic impacts on shear force that that does for, doesn't have the dramatic impacts on slice shear force that it does for Warner Bratzer shear force. And um, I said, you know, if we modified gluteus sampling, then we could do a much broader sample than the three slices that with, with the parallel process we take from GM. And Andy's the one that said, we've absolutely got to do it. He said, it's an impossible procedure for us experts to master and uh, people with less experience have no chance. So, so we set about the process of, of looking at uh, going to perpendicular sampling for gluteus medius. And it allowed us to get six slices out of a steak instead of three. It increased the repeatability of slice shear force for that muscle and had zero impact on the mean slice shear force of that muscle. So that brought us back to, well, should we modify how we do it for longissimus? And in beef, it's been one slice from the steak taken from a, a, a section that comes from the lateral end of the steak. And uh, on a lot of steaks, you could actually get two sections. We looked at that um, and, and in most cases you can. And in most cases, you can get three slices from each one of those sections. What we were able to conclude was we don't want to do two sections, even though it actually helps the repeatability. Uh, the medial section is much more tender and will end up biasing the value relative to the value that we've traditionally had with the 45 degree uh, procedure. So uh, we've settled on uh, taking three slices from a section on the lateral end of the steak. And it does improve the repeatability of that procedure. Slows down the throughput a little bit, but still allows us to do uh, 200 or more uh, steaks in a day. I think well, our record is 1,100 and something slices in a day. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs>
The mission of USMEF is to increase the value and profitability of the U.S. beef, pork, and lamb industries by enhancing demand for their products and export markets through a dynamic partnership of all stakeholders. Simply put, USMEF is putting U.S. meat on the world's table. Well, and and for the for the processors out there listening, if you're if you're less familiar with some of the terminology that Dr. Shackford was talking about, um, I'll, I'll kind of boil it down a little bit. But uh, you know, Warner Bros. Shear Force, this is a technique that's been. I mean, it's coming up on a hundred year old technology, essentially, right? It's it's an idea of of mimicking our incisors, of uh, taking little little. Uh, cores out of a out of a steak that's been cooked to a, a consistent degree of doneness, um, putting it into a machine and letting that machine, quote unquote, bite it. You can't see my fingers, but I'm using air quotes, quote unquote, bite this thing. And so how much force does it take to bite through that? Well, it's a you, you it's a it's a long process. And uh, so so the idea with uh, what what Dr. Shackford was talking about is that we, we need something that maybe can speed this process up a little bit. Um, and so what you developed was your prototype, which I really hope you still have your prototype for the, for the Shackleford museum later on, uh, in, do you, do you still we, have we have museums, <laughs> multiple, it's in one of the bunkers. Uh, we won't tell you which one. No, it's all still in building 17. <laughs> but so, th so this idea of, okay, so now we just take us, we can actually take a single steak right off that fresh carcass, um, right after grating, I'm, I'm assuming, but right, you take that steak right off that fresh carcass and, and, and cook it and, and, and run it through this sampling procedure. Um, that's going to be so much quicker than our, our kind of, I, I like to call it gold standard, but the old Warner Bratzel shear force method. And that's this slice shear method um and and uh do you, so do we so based off of what you just told me with kind of the progression of 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 slice shear force um do you still need that that special box with the two bladed knife and everything or or are we moving away from that now no so the the sampling for for the perpendicular procedure, it's actually a different box because the, the holes are perpendicular to the surface. And um, the, uh, the one supplier uh, from Manhattan, Kansas, they've developed a little bit different uh, a method. And um, we're, we've actually, Kind of adapted what they have for a for a uh, ninety degree sampling as well, so that hopefully we can get them to start manufacturing that as other labs start to look at uh, using the ninety degree protocol to make it where they can get the equipment to do so. What I love about about both methods, Warner Bradshaw shear force, slice shear force, is that. Yes, you do need to have some specialized equipment, but it's not it's not specialized equipment that's exorbitantly expensive, right? I mean, we're still we're still cooking steaks, we're still cutting steaks, and so um, maybe it's not it's not quite as readily available for a really small processor. But if you are a a, a uh, meat processor of size, um, these are techniques that could be used. Um, and I'm assume I'm assuming that there are. Um, instructions that are out there that are readily available is that right correct okay 
The only thing that worries us a little bit about this move to a 90 degree perpendicular sample is we've been pretty adamant over a number of years about the sample having to be parallel to the muscle fibers and that that's how you get the best data and the most repeatable data. And so we're, you know, the data that we're collecting now doing it at a 90 degrees to the stake surface is looks good and, and as good or better. And so uh, we, we may be eating some crow here as it becomes uh, more, more widespread. Well, that's, that's research. We search and then we research and, right. and we're, we kind of, we continue to discover maybe better ways of doing things. And yeah, I mean, sometimes we just have to set aside our, our, our pride from the past and look and say, Hey, there's a better way of doing this now. And, and yep. that's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. The, the mass of the sample that we shear through for slice shear force is so much greater than the mass of a Warner Blackster shear force core mm -hmm. that I think it fundamentally changes some of the answers. And, and Tommy and Muhammad did research way back when that showed the difference between parallel and perpendicular for sampling for Warner Blackster shear force mm -hmm. was about a 50% reduction in shear force when you went to perpendicular sampling. But with slice shear force, it's that's not the case. Yeah. Well, and and that makes a lot of sense. And and again, for the for the processors out there that are less familiar with this, look up the slice shear force technique and and Warner Bros. shear force technique for that matter to to kind of better understand because once once you this is where a picture is worth a thousand words. But once you kind of see the technique, um, it's they're, they're simple. They're simple enough. Um, they're simple enough for a, a, a meathead like me to use, and so I use them regularly here in our lab. But we, uh, it, it's it's a technique that is readily uh, repeatable. Again, you, it doesn't cost a lot, but it does give you some really strong data to um, to put back into your management of of your of your process. And so, um, well, I and I appreciate you talking about that and talking a little bit about the history of that. And and honestly, it's been around for. The, the idea of slice shear now has been around for a, a number of years. Is that right? A couple decades now. So, yeah. <laughs> so if you didn't know about it, shame on you. No. <laughs> um, all right. So, so, so that, that's the, that's the topic of the tenderness uh, evaluations and, and techniques of measuring tenderness that I wanted to talk about with this group. Now I want to just take a little bit of a slight, slightly different approach and, and look at um, some other quality attributes that are being investigated at the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center. And, and I believe, Dr. King, um, this is kind of your area, but lean color guidelines. Um, can okay. you talk a little bit about, uh, about what you've developed and, and why that's important for the meat industry? Well, so probably dating back to the, in the early 90s, uh, the American Meat Science Association put a committee together that put together some guidelines on how to, uh, to kind of approach meat color measurement and research and kind of what data that that committee thought was important. And that in that document uh, really got a lot of use. Um, it was um, in by about the early 2000s, it was, or the late two, you know, the early about 2010 or so, it was kind of outdated 
a little bit. And, and so actually, uh, Tommy was the chair of the research protocol for AMSA, and I was on that committee as well. And he approached Melvin Hunt about chairing a revision of the meat color guidelines. And Hunter, if you know Hunter, this is a, you can almost hear him say it, said, I'd be happy to be the idea guy as long as Andy will do all the work. And so, uh, <laughs> and for those of you who, who are <laughs> unfamiliar with Dr. Melvin Hunt, uh, the, the godfather of meat color. So, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so, so I got the chance to work with Hunter and, and I would say that he did a lot more than, than just throw out ideas for that revision, but we put together a revision of the meat color guidelines in 2012. It, we really went to a lot of effort to bring in uh, a lot of researchers who were very, well, I'd say cutting edge and meat color at the time and really tried to, to have, we had reviews of color chemistry, how the, the physics of light reflecting off meat affect color perception, how to design display studies, and even some pretty detailed laboratory techniques that are really common uh, for meat color research, along with recommendations at each step of these are the factors you need to consider when you design an experiment. These are, this is the information that you need to put in a publication when you're ready to publish that. And so that when someone was go to that study and read about it, that they could that adequately evaluate the data and make judgments based on your data. And so that document is still available. Um, it, it is actually set up into about 10, I believe, standalone chapters, I would say, that you could go to and, and wouldn't necessarily have to read the whole document, but you could go there and figure out if you needed to do a display study or you needed to measure cured meat color or some things like that. You could go to those sections and read that. And when the Meat and Muscle Biology Journal came out, uh, the AMSA board at the time decided that it would be great if the color guidelines were in the journal, if they were peer reviewed. And so they asked us to do a revision at that point. And at that point, I thought, okay, we're going to do a quick tune up. We'll turn this around in a couple of months and everything will be good. That was seven years ago. And, uh, um, and so it turned out to be a not not oh just a overhaul but i think we rebodied it and yeah <laughs> vehicle now um so but it's it's a lot of the same information and it but it's now the body of the documents formatted more like a review article and it has five uh standalone supplementary documents that have some of the more step by step uh but we still we worked really really hard to try to have those things that we felt were really important for people to consider, not only for research, but if you're a processor, you're having some color problems that you can reach in there and, and find some information that at least get you started and get you asking the right questions. Um, you know, like I said, Hunter is definitely the idea guy. We brought in a lot of really great scientists, uh, some at the end of their careers, some of us were kind of in the middle. And then some are just really getting started and really doing some great things. And, and my job was to kind of try to keep an eye on how it all fit together, to reformat it into this massive uh, journal article and, and, and shepherd it through the, the publishing process. And so 
right now where it's been accept it's been through peer review it's been accepted by the journal in fact if you go to meat and muscle biology you can read the abstract there's not a ton of information there but uh hopefully we'll be getting the galley proofs before too long but but um just be patient because it's a massive document it's going to take a while to format it for the journal and hopefully it'll be available and i really hope it's useful to everybody and um when when it becomes available so well and I, I know that the meat color guidelines it's something that we use almost on a daily basis here at the university of idaho with our research team and and um uh, you're you're absolutely right in that it's a it's a document um it's it's very much a living document right now but uh, hopefully hopefully we have some even more irrefutable proof as to some of the the techniques that have been developed but it is, it's a great step-by-step -step reference point for so many of us uh, meat science researchers to um, go and just make sure that we're doing everything the same. We're using the same techniques so that we can, this is, there's, there's repeatability to this. Others across the country, across the world could use these standards so that, so that one, one lab could do a project and another lab could do a project and we could compare results. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's the power of a document like this. Is that right, Andy? I agree. The, the one thing I would, I was actually very, there was some discussion early on of actually calling them standards. I was reluctant, in fact, used to do that because I didn't want it to be, you have to do it this way and you can't move the science along. I wanted it as guidelines of, okay, you need to look at these things. You need to consider these things but you're gonna to have to adapt these things to, to put your study together to ask answer the questions that you're asking. So, I mean, the cookie cutter approach that I might very successfully might not work for you. You need to understand uh, why, why those guidelines are in place, what their purpose is, and then use them to put your own protocols to it. That's well, and, and I'm glad you said that. That's a really good point. And, and Yes, it, it's it's a it's a guideline. It there it's a guidebook. It's kind of like it's kind of like when I hear people say the meat buyer's guide is the Bible of of meat cuts. Well, it's no, it's it's kind of more just a guide, like it says on, <laughs> on the label. It's a starting point. It's a it's a reference point. Um, so great points, and and man, I, I appreciate you working on that. It sounds like it was a um, this is this was quite the experience for you, Andy. After uh, seven years. <laughs> deliberation it was, yeah, it was a great experience um you know it's committee work always takes longer and you know it got so big that it kind of got to be where it was really hard you know that whole concept of i've got a i've got a couple hours this afternoon i'm going to spend on this it you didn't get much done you really needed several days uh, to be able to figure in there especially that 2012 document by design had a lot of redundancy when we went to a more a single document standpoint, we, that all needed to come out. But at the same time, it was really hard when you're dealing with a 200 page document to understand, okay, if I cut this out here, is it still somewhere else? And, you know, is that information still in the document somewhere? And so it took a lot of time. There was a lot of, oh, I shouldn't have cut that out. I better go back and find it and put it back in. Um, and, but it took, a you know, I, the the committee was great every time we asked for something we got it and and hunter was you know always uh 
you know, a lot of times he was like, okay, we got to get this done and we got it done. And, and the journal's been great. Dr. Lonergan, Huff Lonergan was really, uh, really helpful for getting it through the review process. And our reviewers um, raised some really good points that were a challenge to address, but I'm glad they did. And um, like I said, I, I'm really proud of how it is and I really hope it's useful. Yeah, well, and, 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 you, and you mentioned it's, it's, it's a lengthy document and that should not um, discourage our processors out there from using this because if, it, even if you, if you reference the 2012 document, it's still, um, it's still very relevant. And, and I would say still very easy to use. Um, the, a lot of pictures, a lot of visuals. And I'm assuming the new, the new one has that as well. So most of those will be in the, uh, the supplementary documents. Mm -hmm. But it may be the only quote unquote journal article you see with a table of contents, but it's in there to help you navigate it. Yeah. And uh, I think it will be, uh, like I said, it, it's, it's a different format than the old version, um, but it's, I think it's, gonna, it's still very useful. Um, the, the feedback we've gotten so far has been really positive. And uh, I hope it, you know, like I said, we'll see it, it. I wouldn't be intimidated if, you know, if someone who, you know, the, the length of the document, I, I don't think should be something that scares people away. Cause like I said, there, there, it is sections and, and I, you know, I would tell a graduate student, they needed to read it from cover to cover. It'll, it'll help them, especially if they're getting ready for prelims, it'll, it's, it's a lot of information in one place. Uh, but for the rest of us there, it shouldn't be too hard to find the information you need and, uh, and move on with your day. Yeah. Well, um, you know, after after a project like that, it sounds like uh, Andy that you're ready for retirement, and that's that's <laughs> awesome. Before before you do um, something, we like to ask all, all of our guests on Meets Meets Pad is how did you get to where you are? And I'm not saying Nebraska. I'm saying how did you how did you get into the meat uh, world that you're in? And so, Andy, uh, if you don't mind, would you mind kicking this off? Sure. Uh, so, well, you know, I grew up. Um, in agriculture, around agriculture. Actually, my dad was a county extension agent, and I kind of got really exposed to what research can do for producers. And, and I, you know, I really wanted to be a producer, but that really wasn't in the cards for me. And for a while, I thought I wanted to be a vet, like a lot of us that go to school, and kind of got in there and figured out that wasn't where I wanted to be. But I got involved in meats judging and I got through a series of really happy coincidences, wound up kind of getting to know Dan Hale and Davey Griffin and being involved in extension at, in meat science at Texas A&M and got really involved there and um, uh, just kind of fell in love with meat science and it, really everything about it. Wound up going to uh, Kansas State for uh, my master's and while I was there, I worked with Dr. Michael Dykeman and I went to him with kind of a list of ideas that I wanted to pursue for uh, my master's thesis. And they were, there were some things there that um, in that list that he wasn't really set up to do, but he said, there's some guys up at Clay Center that are, and, uh, and let's get them on the phone and talk to them. So I wound up kind of spending a couple of weeks in Tommy's lab and, and, uh, doing my master's thesis and I went back to A&M for my PhD and once again came back to Clay Center and so when it was time to wrap it up um, 
uh, and uh, and get done. It just so happened that that Tommy and Muhammad were looking for a postdoc, and I was able to uh, uh, jump in and take that position. And it was very fortunate; it turned into a permanent position. And so, been able to do some really interesting things. And so, I, I tell people that I've been here for 15 years, but I'm still the new guy. So. <laughs> Well, you're, you're working with some, some folks that have, have definitely um, been yeah. in it for a little while, um, but also um, uh, an amazing team. So, Tommy, Steve? Okay. So, uh, I grew up on a, on a farm in West Texas and uh, was in 4-H and FFA and uh, just around agriculture growing up and uh, in uh, FFA, I was on the meat judging team in high school, so I knew when I got to Texas Tech that I wanted to get involved with that. Um, I was actually in ag economics, uh, was my major. Got involved with the judging team and, and uh, enjoyed that a lot. Uh, and then if any of you know Gordon Davis uh, at Texas Tech, when I was there, he, he can be very persuasive and convinced me that I should uh, get a master's in meat science. So I did that and then and figured out that, that this really is, uh, you know, something that I, I really enjoy and decided to get a PhD and went to Texas A&M and got my PhD with Russell Cross and Steve Smith. And uh, Russell had at one time in his career been at Clay Center and they happened to have a vacancy when I was getting done and uh, ended up fortunate enough to basically land in my dream job. And I've been here almost 33 years now and uh, as a scientist and then since 2007 as the research leader for the group. And it's just been a fantastic ride and something different every day. And it's still still really loving all the stuff that we get to do. And myself, um, I also grew up the son of a county agent although he moved on from that occupation early on in my life, but we had the 4-H livestock projects and uh, other such activities. Um, you know, when we slaughtered the 4-H steers at a uh, locker plant, we always uh, went in two weeks later before those carcasses were gonna get cut up and collected carcass data and traced ribeyes. And here I am 40 something years later and we're still tracing ribeyes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when I got to the University of Georgia, my sister who had just graduated with her animal science degree said, you need to talk to Bo Reagan and see if you can get on the meats judging team. And I did, and you know that spiraled out of control into a career. <laughs> um, and uh, at the conclusion of my master's project, um, Mark Miller was trying to set up some collaborations with the Meat Animal Research Center and convinced me to come out here for a essentially post masters. <laughs> And I did, and it was a great experience, and, um, and then ended up back here uh, while I was doing my PhD research at Texas A&M, did my dissertation research here, and have been on staff here since 1992. 
Well, um, it, it's a pleasure to uh, get to get a chance to visit with you guys. Um, it's it's an absolute honor to know you, of course. Um, for those out there um, listening, make sure you get to know the three musketeers here. Um, Dr. King, Dr. Wheeler, Dr. Shackford. Um, hopefully we get a chance to, to meet up in person soon. Um, but uh, guys, thank you so much for this. Um, what what before we leave, um, how do how how can people learn more about the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center um, and maybe some of the topics we we talked about? So you can go to the to the USDA ARS Meat Animal Research Center website, and there's some basic information there. But um, you know, maybe just give one of us a call or an email. That might that might be the best way. Who knows? You got it. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much, and have a fantastic day. Thanks, Phil. Thank appreciate you. It.